We are so glad you've joined us today for our Tuesday broadcast of Abiding in the Word with Dave Love, Senior Pastor of Calvary Castle Rock. Today, we are continuing our study in the book of Genesis. So let's listen in now to Pastor Dave. Soon your trials will be over. Uh, I love this because it's kind of God's amazing grace that he can turn a cruel person like Levi and his descendants and make them a priestly tribe. That's God's grace. It's the same with God has transformed us, his children, in the kingdom of priests. In 1 Peter 2.9, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Before I received Jesus, I was not the people of God. Now that I've received Jesus, I've become the people of God and I've now obtained mercy. In Revelation 5.10, speaking of the redeemed, those who have received Jesus, it says, and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on earth. We have a slide here of the nation of Israel and you can see where Simeon is right here. They get absorbed. They will be absorbed into Judah and then... uh, And then very soon thereafter, this is only known as Judah. You don't even hear the mention of Simeon later on in their history. Um, You'll notice with all the different tribes, you won't see the tribe of Levi anywhere. I'm going to bring this up to you now. We'll go over it next week, but I want you to try and figure it out if you can. Read about Zebulun. It says it borders on Sidon. Kind of a seafaring, the haven for ships. But there's Zebulun right there. Asher, Manasseh are blocking their way to the coast. You have the other sea over here, that Naphtali, and I can't even read that right there. I think that's uh, Issachar. Is that what that says? I believe so. And until you can prove me wrong, that's what it is. Uh, And so I believe those two tribes are protecting Zebulun from the Sea of Galilee. So how can they be a haven for ships? Yeah, but that's uh, what's going to be prophesied to them, and we will talk about that next week. Isn't that interesting, though? Anyway, continuing on here. Now we have Judah in verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall pray. I mean, think about this for a moment. (laughs) Okay, Uh, you, you figure for whatever reason they're in line, okay, uh, Jacob is probably doing the same thing that he did for Ephraim and Manasseh. He's not doing well. So he probably couldn't walk to them. They probably came to wherever he was on his bed, probably sitting in his bed, also on his staff. The, 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 they're brought in, in the order or they're just kind of behind and they're coming forward as he calls them, something like that. So you figure all the, the sons are there and they've already heard what has happened to Reuben. Okay, you will not excel. And now they've heard about Simeon and Levi. You're cruel and you're going to be scattered. Okay, Judah, come forward. Oh, great. You know, Judah probably felt his past transgressions would probably come back to haunt him. Okay, 
I mean, we're, we're looking at him. After all, Judah wasn't really a man of good character. He was one who suggested selling Joseph for profit to the Midianite traders in Genesis 37. In Genesis 38, we see Judah have sex with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking she was just a prostitute for not keeping his promise to her, giving her son, his third son, Shelah, when he was of age, as was the custom of marriage, and didn't do that, wasn't a man of his word. But he did shine when he interceded and offered himself as a substitute for Joseph in Genesis 44, 18 through 34. But Judah's being called up next. He's got to be thinking, this can't be good. Because the first three certainly weren't. But this is what we read for Judah. Verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Right now he's gone, all right, not so bad. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Judah is really the first blessing upon one of Jacob's sons. And it also begins with Judah's now preeminence. You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Here we have a a play on words. Judah means praise, okay? And we see this all through uh, the Old Testament. And because of being written in Hebrew, we, we have these play on words. In other words, praise your brothers will praise you. So in the future, just so you know, your brothers will come to praise you. And, and that could be seen in the person of, of King David, In the future, I think it probably means also Jesus at his second coming because he comes from the tribe of Judah. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, meaning Judah shall succeed in war. And then Jacob adds, your father's children will bow down before you. Judah's preeminence here is seen from the beginning. In Numbers chapter 2, as they began their trek to the promised land into Uh, promised land, it was Judah who went forth first, leading the other tribes. Whenever they were to move, Judah went first. They all followed him. We see this again in Numbers chapter 10, verse 14, when it came time to go up against the Canaanites in the land, it was Judah who was chosen to go first to lead the other tribes. We read in Judges 1.1, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, who shall be the first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. We read last week when it came to Ephraim and Manasseh. But in 1 Chronicles 5, verse 1, it says, now the sons of Reuben the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to birthright. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler. He's told that he's going to have this lion-like dominance 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Judah is a lion's whelp, a young lion. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bowed down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. Right now, Judah, yeah, he's a young lion. Eventually, he's going to become a full-blown mature lion. And guess what? When he lies down from his prey, he's going to lie over it. He's going to crouch over it. And who's going to mess with a mature lion? Who's going to mess with Judah? tribe of Judah would take his enemies by the neck. The picture here is a lion with prey in its mouth. With its mouth on it, its prey's neck, hauling it back to its den, fiercely crouching over it to devour its prey. King David, when he was speaking of his exploits, said this in 2 Samuel twenty-two forty-one, Speaking to God, he says, You have also given me the necks of my enemies, so that I destroyed those who hated me. Again, in Psalm 18, verse 39, David again, speaking of him, it says, For you, David speaking to God, for you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. The standard, the flag for each tribe, the one for Judah was what? The lion. The lion. Interesting, in Revelation 5, 5, Jesus is called the lion from the tribe of Judah. Now comes the prophecy of the first coming of the Messiah. Comes from Judah. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now the word scepter uh, in the Hebrew uh, Shavet means rod or staff or scepter. Well, Dave, why do you think it means scepter here? Because of the next word, lawgiver. Because those two are together and the word lawgiver is uh, shahach there, means to govern, to make decrees is what that means. So when you put these two together, the scepter with the lawgiver, it speaks of rulership, Okay. One who governs, one who makes decrees is the one that's going to have the scepter. And between his feet seems to indicate Judah's seed. So from Judah's seed will come one who rules and will continue to rule until Shiloh comes. The key word here is Shiloh. Shiloh was the name of a town near Bethel. Shiloh is where the tabernacle rested with the Ark of the Covenant for 369 years. Here's an aerial view of it. When you go to Israel, we go here. This is Shiloh here, actually pronounced Shiloh, as we'll see in a moment. And so uh, um, we, we, we come, we enter here. It's really cool gardens and everything. We kind of walk through here. We see all these remains and, and uh, well, not like human remains, but, you know, like, uh, <laughs> although that would have been cool. But anyway, uh, it, we see all the archaeological digs that they've done here and uncovered and unearthed. And then there's this building that they made here that you see this really um, uh, sad, uh, you really see this uh, movie about the area of Shiloh and Hannah and all that kind of stuff. And it's a really uh, bad movie production-wise. Um, but, and then you walk out over here and come down here and this is where the tabernacle was right here. 
And this is where the Holy of Holies would have been, right here. And we get jazzed because we can walk on this ground. And sometimes you feel it's holy ground, but it really isn't holy ground. It's just ground because the Holy Spirit is inside of you now. And wherever you step is holy ground. Okay? It's still kind of cool to see then go, wow, for 369 years, that's where the tabernacle was. And those of you who go into Israel with us and... Uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to go there and, and, and you'll be able to walk there and, and see those kind of things. So the word uh, Shiloh here, Hebrew word, it's Shiloh. It means he's whose it is or whose right it is or that which belongs to him. Interesting. Interesting. Generally understood, this is speaking of the Messiah who is to come, the one whose right it is. The one whose right it is. The Septuagint translates it this way and also the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, This is one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Bible. The seed from which the tribe of David or the tribe of Judah will rule until the seed of Shiloh comes or Shiloh comes. Already we have been told that there will be a seed of the woman which spoke of Christ in Genesis 3.15. You might remember it, you know, back in the late 50s when we were there. Uh, in Genesis 3.15, says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman is the one who will do the bruising of the serpent's head with a death blow. The seed is Jesus. He will be the one who gets the victory. We know women don't have seed, only men have seed. So this speaks of the virgin birth. This is the first prophecy of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, that the seed is confirmed to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and now it's being confirmed to Judah. And out of Judah's line, the seed, the Messiah, Shiloh will come. Shiloh will come. Shiloh is the seed of Genesis 3.15. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus being spoken of here in Genesis 49.10. Now, Shiloh, um, the Hebrew word Shiloh, also comes from the root word Salah which means rest or peace. It's where shalom comes from in that greeting. So where we get shalom, meaning peace. Interesting, we read in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I have a dear friend, pastor of a church, and um, when Chuck Smith was still alive, we had a, a pastor's breakfast, and, uh, and Chuck was there. And so after he got done exhorting us and, and teaching what he taught, he had a time of question and answer, you know. And so my friend raises his hand, and Chuck calls on him, and he says, he says Chuck, he says, what do you do um, when you're getting burned out? You know, what do you do after you've been burned out or have you ever been burned out or, or what do you do when you kind of see yourself being burned out? Chuck looked at him and said, well, I've done close to 50 years of ministry and I've never once been burned out. And then he quotes this verse. It says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Either that's true or it's not. And he says, so if you're getting burned out, you're doing something wrong. It's like, Every pastor in that place 
when, when this person, almost his name, when this person, when this person asked the question, we were all going, oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I'd like to know how. And every one of us were so glad. I'm glad I didn't ask that question. <laughs> it was like, oh, man. You know? <laughs> I bring that up to him all the time. I always said, dude, I'm so glad you asked that question. And I'm so glad I didn't ask that question. You know. But I've taken this to heart, and it's absolutely true. As a pastor, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what are you whining about? Right here, Jesus' yoke is easy, his burden is light. If for some reason I'm getting burned out, I'm doing something wrong, and I'm doing it in the flesh. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm going off another pet peeve here. I was sharing this with the people I was mentoring last night. I have a mentorship going on with three guys. And so I said, if I, if I hear this from another minister, I think I'm going to throw up. Well, you got to have boundaries. I hate that psychobabble. I hate that when someone says that. Well, you know, pastor, you got to have boundaries. Really? Show me in God's word where there are boundaries. Oh, I see it in territory. I see it in physical territory. But don't give me this junk you have to have boundaries well you got to set aside time for yourself the lord i i get that but guess what if i'm in my quiet time and someone calls and someone's in the hospital someone's dying they need to talk to me hold on boundaries i gotta be in my quiet time hey i need a day of rest as well i don't care if my phone's ringing out i don't care if someone's knocking boundaries that's malarkey that's garbage don't have that part of your vocabulary. Dave, but this person, I have to have boundaries. That Don't call it boundaries. There's wisdom. Yeah, I'm not going to let this person into my kid's life because they're, they're detrimental to them. I get that. Don't call it boundaries. As someone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and what God has given me to do, I have no boundaries. Where God calls me to minister, I minister. I'm exhausted sometimes after ministering and something comes up and I just pray. I said, okay, Lord, Holy Spirit power. When I'm weak, you are strong. Either that's true or it's not. And it is every single time. And the next thing I know, all of a sudden I have a respite for like 36 hours. Things are kind of calm. God's pouring into me. I'm getting rest. That's awesome. I don't put up boundaries. No one should put up boundaries. You go by the wisdom and leading of the Holy Spirit. Those who have boundaries want to get to bed early and not be disturbed. And they want hours and they want to work nine to five. And that, that is not a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hate that term. I'm just telling you right now. I'm not going to rebuke you when you say it to me in counseling. Well, you got a boundary. I'm going to bite my lip. I said, let's go over here. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And if that's not happening in your life, it's because you're doing things in the flesh. And that's why you're getting burned out. Dave, have you ever been burned out? I have. And you know what? Because I was doing things in the flesh. And I, I know, I, I have the red flags in my own life when... You know, I need to, I need to sit before God because I'm getting overwhelmed. Why am I getting overwhelmed? Because now I'm trying to figure out how to do this, how in the flesh, as opposed to just going, Lord, this is your problem. And so show me what to do. And until you do, I'm going to rest in you and show me what I can be doing for your kingdom, what your glory. That's Dave's pet peeve 
number, and you can put a list on all those pet peeves I have. But anyway, it says here, until Shiloh comes. The leadership prophecy took about 640 years to fulfill in part with the reign of David, of Judah's dynasty kings, and some 1,600 years to fulfill and the actual person of Jesus from when this was first spoken. Jesus is Shiloh. The name meaning he whose right it is. The title anxiously understood, always by the rabbis understood this to speak of the Messiah. From David until the Herods, a, a prince of Judah was head over Israel. The promise was that Israel would keep the scepter until Shiloh comes. Even under their foreign masters during this period, Israel always had a limited right to self-rule until 7 AD. Then under Herod and the Romans, the right to capital punishment was taken away. At that time, the rabbis considered it a disaster of unfulfilled scripture. Seeming the last vestige of the scepter had passed from Judah and they did not see the Messiah. Josephus records this as well as the Babylonian Talmud and other sources that when the Sanhedrin found themselves deprived of the right over life and death, they covered their heads with ashes and their bodies with sackcloth and bemoaned. Woe unto us for the scepter has departed from Judah and the Messiah has not come. Little did they know he had come and he was growing up in Nazareth as a carpenter's son. It was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. The Jews understood this because when they brought Jesus to Pilate, it says in John 18, 31, and Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They didn't have the right. They didn't have the scepter that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying what death he would die. Interesting when it came to Jesus, how everything was navigated this way. Hey, we don't, we don't have the right to take someone's life, really, because not too many years after that, he took the life of Stephen, stoned him. But he wasn't to be stoned, he was to be crucified. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. This seems to be referring to Christ's first coming. He came down on the donkey's foal. The abundance of wine was a signal to Israel that the Messiah was here. And what was Jesus' first miracle? The wedding feast at Cana, turning water into wine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. This seems to be referring to his second coming. Isaiah 63 says this, and we're going to end here. It says, who is this who comes from Eden with dyed garments from Basra? The one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteous, mighty to save. Who is this who comes from Edom? Dyed garments from Basra? Well, Basra is Petra, the era of Petra. This is where Jesus first comes at his second coming to judge the Antichrist armies through the Valley of Jezreel, going all the way to Jerusalem, to the, uh, um, to, uh, the Mount of Olives. Okay, Jesus doesn't first come to the Mount of Olives. He first goes to Basra there in Edom, wipes out all the armies, and then he sets foot there on the Mount of Olives. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone from the peoples. No one was with me, for I've trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. I have stained all my robes for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the, and the year of my redeemed has come. 
I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered, and there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. Only God can say that. And my own fury had sustained me. I've trodden down the peoples in my anger. Speaks of judgment. Only God can do that. Made their drunk in my fury and brought down their strength to the earth. This seems to be the Messiah's second coming is being spoken of here to Judah. Verse 12 says, My eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. It's a picture of strength and power. What a Messiah, the abundance of wine, the judgment of their enemies to rule forever. Let's pray. That's it for another edition of Abiding in the Word with Dave Love, Senior Pastor of Calvary Castle Rock. If you've missed any of these teachings and would like to catch up, you can download our free mobile app. It's a great way to take any of Pastor Dave's teachings with you wherever you go. All you have to do is go to the Apple App Store or Google Play and search for Calvary Castle Rock. Once you've installed the app, open it up and click on Teachings, and then go to On the Radio. There you can listen to today's segment or any of the previous segments by broadcast date. You can also subscribe to our radio audio podcast. If you want to learn more about our ministry, please go to our website at calvarycr.com. That's calvarycr.com. As always, thanks again for listening in today. Until our next time together, we want to encourage you to always be abiding in the Word of God.